podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week it's just me, there's no guests, and I'm going to be talking about the UK Championship, which at the time of recording starts on this very day. Now, of course, the UK Championship uh, has a long and proud history. It's one of the longest running events on the circuit, and this is a kind of uh, a brief history of the tournament. Or if you prefer a bluffer's guide, so if uh, you find yourself talking to someone and you need to pull out a fact from the history of the UK Championship, then it may well come up in this podcast. It was first held in 1977. Mike Watterson was the original promoter. We often talk about Mike Watterson, of course, quite rightly, in terms of the man who found the Crucible and took the World Championship to the Crucible in Sheffield earlier in 1977. He was a very energetic uh, promoter, Mike Watterson, even in the era before Barry Hearn. And... uh, he recognised that snooker was taking off and that there needed to be more tournaments. The BBC were becoming interested. They were starting to show highlights, even some live coverage of tournaments. So there needed to be more tournaments. And the UK Championship uh, was first staged at the end of 1977. It was uh, just before Christmas in a very wintry Blackpool, which obviously affected uh, audiences. It wasn't hugely attended. But it got, got off and running. And the tournament, as its name suggested, UK Championship, was for players who were basically from the UK, although also resident in Britain. So Irish players could enter, and Patsy Fagan not only entered it, he won it. It was his great success. He was the first winner. He beat Doug Mountjoy 12-9 in the final. Patsy Fagan, a very talented player, came up uh, through playing a lot of uh, amateur snooker money matches in the London area, was known uh, for being a very tough match player and uh, a great win, and he got the whole thing off and running. But significantly what happened the year after was it moved to the Preston Guildhall. And for many people listening to this, the tournament is still really associated with Preston, the Guildhall, those uh, sort of pre-Christmas weeks, settling down on the BBC to watch the UK Championship. The winner in 1978 was the runner-up from the previous year, Doug Mountjoy. Mountjoy uh, was a former World Amateur Champion. He'd won the Masters and then won the UK, and he went on to be runner-up in the World Championship. He had a, a fantastic career, but only turned pro in his early 30s. So uh, he missed out on the chances uh, maybe earlier on, although, of course, there weren't that many chances in the 70s when snooker was just taking off. He beat David Taylor, the Silver Fox himself, in the final 15-9. 1979 was the great success for John Virgo, although, of course, uh, it was not without its problems. He beat Terry Griffiths in the end in a decider, but uh, what he didn't know was that for the final session of the final, because it was going to be live on the BBC One grandstand programme, they brought the time forward. So he was in his hotel playing cards, uh, JV, and uh, suddenly there was a call, where are you? The final's about to start again. He had to basically leg it to the Guildhall, was docked a couple of frames. Now, Terry Griffiths, being the nice chap that he is, uh, said to him, well, look, OK, this is bad for you. Why don't we just agree to split the prize money? To which <laughs> to which John Virgo said, uh, in not entirely a humorous way, you've not won it yet, Terry. Um, and, of course, in a way, it provided him with extra inspiration, and he came through to win 14-13. I think in the end, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any footage of it. I think the cameraman, I don't know, on strike or whatever, but... Um, the, the end of the final, for some reason, doesn't seem to exist in video form, but it was John Virgo's great moment. Of course, the irony is, having commentated for so many years for the BBC on it, he's not part of the team this year, which seems a shame. And then the 80s dawned, and of course, the dawn of the Steve Davis era. And uh, the UK Championship, I think, for Steve, I'm sure, is still a very special tournament, because it was his big breakthrough. 1980, this uh, 23-year-old ginger fella from the London area, not only won the tournament, but just destroyed people. I mean, that was Steve's thing. He didn't just want to win. He wanted to really roll people over. And uh, you look at the the matches he won. In the semi-finals, he beat Terry Griffiths, who, of course, 
just 18 months earlier, won the World Championship. He beat him 9-0. And in the final, he beat Alex Higgins, obviously one of the foremost players of the day, 16-6. So it wasn't only announcing his arrival as a champion that was impressive about Steve's breakthrough. It was the way he just rolled people over. And, of course, that relentless attitude, that will to win, would stand him in great stead for the rest of the decade. 1981, you know, not content with beating Alex 16-6, he beat Terry Griffiths 16-3 in the final. Again, a thumping win and just a testament to the way that Davis just wanted to basically destroy people. I mean, in, in the last 16, he'd beaten Willie Thorne 9-2. Semi-finals, he'd beaten Jimmy White 9-0. So Davis, uh, of course, also by 1981 had become world champion and was very much already established, clearly, as the man to beat. And, of course, the thing about Steve was he didn't just play really well he did everything right off the table he was an ultimate pro he and Barry Hearn recognised this was a new era where there was a lot of money to be made at snooker if you did things properly not just in terms of practice and the way you played but in terms of how you acquitted yourself off the table and my word he certainly acquitted himself well so that was 1981 but the following year he didn't reach the final and the final turned into a real classic the two people who had destroyed in the previous two years Terry Griffiths and Alex Higgins went toe-to-toe. Terry actually beat Steve in the quarterfinals, 9-6, and then came through in a decider, 16-15 against Higgins. Those two had some real old dust-ups. Terry, you know, a very different character to Alex. Alex was a volatile man, we know that. Terry, much more placid, but very steely. I mean, obviously, to win the World Championship, you've got to be, you know, the nice man, OK, off the table. But on the table, he was as tough as anyone. And uh, he was actually two down with three to play. Won the last three frames of the final, again, showing that great steel that he had to come through and add the the UK title to the world title that he'd already won. And, of course, he was a triple crowner. They both were, both Higgins and uh, and Terry, as well as, obviously, Steve Dervis. And, and in that era, early 80s, the, the, the three of them really dominated the tournament. You know, the following year, following two years, actually, it was Higgins and, and Davis again. But one thing is important to say at this stage is, of course, in those days, the UK Championship was not a ranking tournament. There were no ranking points available because it wasn't open to everyone on the tour. It was just open to basically British and Irish players. So they weren't earning ranking points, although it didn't really matter anyway because there weren't really many ranking tournaments. There was the World Championship and around about 82, more tournaments started to be added and a proper ranking list was, was formed. And eventually the UK Championship in 1984 did become a ranking event. But before that, of course... We had the 1983 final, and this was a very significant one for a number of reasons. It was really Alex Higgins's great triumph over Steve Davis. Davis went 7-0 up. Now, bearing in mind the way he destroyed not only Alex, but Terry and various others in the tournament in finals and previous rounds, you know, he was a big favourite at 7-0 to go all the way and win. But Alex Higgins, whatever you want to say about Alex, one thing about him was he never gave up. He had that real tough will to win at all costs. And he fought back, and he fought back, and he fought back, and eventually he won 16-15. It was significant for him because his record against Davis over the years was not great. Steve, even though he admits himself he was basically scared of him, he did at least have the beating of him on most occasions. So for Alex to beat him on such a high-profile stage would have been a source of great satisfaction. Of course, it came about 18 months after he'd won his second world title. But I think the other significant thing about that win was it planted a seed, I think, in Steve Davis's mind that became critical 18 months on when he played another Northern Irishman, Dennis Taylor, in the final of the World Championship and again went miles in front, 8-0. Of course, we know what happened. He lost 18-17 on the final black. And I think the fact that he'd had a big high-profile defeat in a final uh, on a big stage in a big tournament must have been a factor in then that later defeat 
that came uh, to Dennis Taylor. So Alex Higgins uh, maybe didn't mean to, but he did his old rival Dennis a bit of a favour, I think, down the line. It has to be said, though, it didn't seem to affect him a year later in the UK because he then went back to the the established uh, Davis order of just destroying someone in the final. It was Alex again. There didn't seem to be any hangover from what had happened 12 months earlier. He, uh, he'd beaten Kirk Stevens 9-2 in the, in the semis. He'd beaten Jimmy 9-4 in the quarters. Alex 16-8 in the, uh, in the final. And uh, yeah, and again, he was the winner. And of course, that was the first, as I said earlier, the first ranking tournament uh, status given to the UK Championship. 1985, a uh, significant year for Steve, of course. We mentioned Dennis Taylor. But he started to put things right by picking up titles. He beat, uh, I think, Dennis again in the in the Grand Prix final, 10-9, at the start of, 80, of the 85-86 season. And then we come to an incredible final with Willie Thorne. Willie, in some ways, I think, was playing, you could argue, in the wrong era. He was such an attacking player, Willie Thorne, such a natural talent. In, if anything, he might have flourished better in the current era. He was up against these bruising match players, and it looked like he was going to win what would have been his biggest title. He'd won the Mercantile Classic at the start of 85, his first ranking event. But it looked like he was going to uh, take the, the UK title because he was 13-8 up on Steve Davis and needed just three more frames for victory. Sailing towards 14-8, and I'm sure many people have seen this and Willie has never really got over it. Routine blue, basically, for 14-8. Missed it. And then the turnaround started and Steve Davis came back to win 16-14. It was a bruising moment for Willie and just uh, also a sign of the way that Davis, like so many of these really top champions in the sport, sensed a moment of weakness, sensed a chance to come back and did come back and that was UK title number four. And uh, he only had to wait another year for UK title number five. He played Neil Folds in the final. Neil at the time was having really the best spell of his career. He just won his first ranking title, the International at Stoke. And uh, although Davis would have been favourite in the final, I'm sure a lot of people expected Neil to make it tough for him. But Neil actually said on this podcast recently, and it was, I think, a typically wise thing to say, he said, the way Steve played against you, he didn't only want to beat you, he wanted to beat you for next time as well. And he was determined, once he got in front, to stay in front. And he went on to win 16-7. And as at the Crucible, I mean, he'd obviously lost to Dennis, he'd lost to Joe Johnson in finals. But as at the Crucible, in these big tournaments, Davis really was the man to beat. He really was underlining his his class, his his ability, his professionalism, coming good at the right time in the major events. And it happened again a year later, so he'd already won five UK titles. He was up against Jimmy White in the final. He'd already uh, had some, some big wins. He'd beaten Alex Higgins. Davis, this is Alex Higgins, 9-2 in the last 16. He'd beaten Willie, 9-2 in the semis. Jimmy White, of course... By this stage, was a firm fan's favourite. They'd had a, a world final in 1984 that went close, 1816. Jimmy had won the Masters. He was uh, this dashing young Londoner who played all these exhibition shots and, and thrilled crowds, absolutely thrilled them. Davis was the ultimate uh, number one. He was a solid match player. He didn't play the flair stuff, but he, he won tournaments. That was the point. It was a great match, this. It was a classic, actually. And uh, in the end, Davis just came through again, as he had in the in the World Final that they played, 16-14. But he'd been run close, and maybe there were signs then that, OK, no-one could stay at the top forever. You know, he'd only just won that one. It was uh, it was the toughest UK final uh, in terms of the scoreline, I guess, that he played in, in terms of the ones he won. Obviously, he'd lost one, but in terms of the one he won, I know he came back against Willie Thorne, but in terms of being put under pressure by someone who, in the former Jimmy White, you could see potentially overtaking him and becoming world champion... 
But he won, that's the point, and that's what Steve Davis did. When he had to find gears, he did. And that was six UK titles. And at that point, I'm sure people must have thought, well, he's just going to go on and on and on. But actually, of course, he didn't win another UK title. One other thing to say about 87, just to, this may make Willie feel better if he's listening. Of course, Willie Thorne made the first maximum in the UK Championship that year. Unfortunately for him, though, it was the pre-TV stage, so he didn't, didn't get the big money prize, but it was a little feather in his cap. Now, 1988, this was a very significant year. It's actually the 30th anniversary now of this of this UK Championship. Stephen Hendry had come along and had just won his first ranking title the year before, the Grand Prix, he'd won the British Open since, and he was establishing himself very much as a player to watch. He'd had an amazing match with Jimmy White in the last 16, the second round of the World Championship at the Crucible the previous season, where there were a string of breaks. It was great attacking snooker. The sort of match now, if you saw it, you'd think... OK, well, yeah, we're used to that, but they kind of started that that way of playing in the big matches, in the big tournaments. Jimmy won 13-12, but it was clear we were going to see a lot more of Stephen Hendry. He got to the final against Doug Mountjoy, who, of course, had won the UK Championship, as we talked about earlier, 10 years previously, but had gone into real decline. Doug was 46. His technique basically seemed to have gone. He was getting heavily beaten. He was sliding down the rankings. He was down to 24 in the world. And I guess at that age, 46, you expect a player who... Is on the decline to keep declining. What happened was he went to see Frank Callan, who was a very wise and and experienced coach in Blackpool, who remodelled his technique, gave him the confidence in his game. You know, we talk about Mark Williams now, the way he's pursued the sight the sight right alignment technique to give him that confidence back. And it happened to Doug as well, thirty years ago. Got to the final, and incredibly won. He won. No one really expected him to. It was a great fairy tale story. He won sixteen twelve, but not only won. He played superbly. At one stage in the final that year in Preston, he had three centuries in a row. Now, that was very, very rare. In fact, it only happened for the first time a few months earlier in the international final. Steve Davis did it against Jimmy White. It was the first time it happened in a pro match, and Doug emulated that feat. And I guess, you know, he was a sort of player you wouldn't necessarily associate with heavy scoring, but it just underlined how well he played, and it was a real heartwarming story because it felt like there was still hope for players who had maybe had their moment in the sun. They could have another one. And in fact, Doug did. A few weeks later, he won the next ranking event as well, the Mercantile Classic in Blackpool. But that remains, I think, one of the great stories from the UK Championship. Doug Mountjoy's improbable, incredible triumph 30 years ago. 1989 was a significant UK Championship because it pitted Stephen Hendry against Steve Davis. If you think of it as a sort of graph, at this point, Stephen Hendry is rising and Steve Davis... He's not so much declining, because he was world champion. He'd won a sixth world title earlier that year. But he was being caught up, is the point. The gap between them was narrowing, and Hendry was starting to beat Davis. And unfortunately, they never played in a, in a world championship final. They played in the semis uh, that year, and, and Davis had got the win. They never played in a final. But the UK championship was still a two-session, you know, big, big occasion. And it was going to be fascinating to see whether Hendry could recover from the defeat of the previous year, whether Davis could win a seventh UK title. Hendry won 16-12, and what was significant about that was he went on to win also the, of course, the World Championship for the first time at the end of the season. When he got that confidence of winning the second biggest tournament along the way, he also, uh, on, in that season, of course, won the Masters. So he emulated uh, Davis in winning the big three in the same season. Davis had done it in the uh, 87 88 season and of course at the end of that he became BBC Sports Personality of the Year but the two of them going head to head was fascinating 16-12 to Hendry what happened a year later though remains arguably the best UK final of them all certainly it's got to be right up there 
in the top two or three. Hendry versus Davis again, and this was a real classic. This was toe-to-toe all the way. Davis looked like he'd actually broken the back of it. He went 15-14 up, and you expected him, I suppose, at that point with his experience, his greater experience, to close it out, despite the fact Hendry was world champion and clearly capable of, at that point, winning any tournament. What happened was Hendry really underlined his bravery as a player. He went for a blue that was low percentage with the rest in the penultimate frame, won that frame 15-all and went on to win the decider. And it just underlined not only the fact that he wasn't scared of playing anyone on the big stage, but also he wasn't scared of going for his shots. He actually won the uh, the deciding frame with a break in 98. And he was UK champion for the second time. And it did really underline the passing of the torch in terms of the at the very top of the sport. He was now world champion. He was world number one. He was UK champion. The Davis years were over. You know, the 80s were over. The Davis years were over. It was the age of Stephen Hendry, and of course, as the decade went on, he more than proved that that was an accurate description. But 1991 was very much the year of John Parrott at the Crucible and in terms of the UK at Preston as well. He beat Jimmy White at the Crucible, he beat him again 16 13 uh, at the Guildhall to win the UK title, to do the double. And we mustn't forget, you know, we talk about this era, the, the, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, the names you normally hear are Davis, Hendry, Jimmy White. John Parrott was right up there as well. It was an authentic top four. And, you know, to be winning the big titles at that time when Davis, Hendry and White were all at their best was a significant achievement. And uh, Parrott had a lot of success outside the UK, won a lot of tournaments for whatever reason abroad. But that year, 91, he won the World, he won the UK Championship and was very much uh, a worthy winner to, again, win the, those two-day finals, the big finals against someone like Jimmy White, who had all the crowd on his side, you know, major achievement for, for Parrott. Following year, though, he came up on the wrong side against White. And this was Jimmy's great triumph, I suppose, because 92 had been a mixed year for him. He actually won a lot of tournaments in 92. He'd won the European Open, the British Open, the Grand Prix. But, of course, what people remember is losing that world final from 14-8 up to Stephen Hendry, 18-14. And so to bounce back in the way that he did, it's typical Jimmy, really. You know, he's irrepressible. Even now, you know, he, he's got a right to look back with some... I guess bitterness or certainly regret. He doesn't at all. He just gets on with tomorrow. That's what he's interested in and he'll be fired up for, for this year's UK Championship as much as any other. But 92 was his great year and, and the thing about it was, if you look at the trophy now, just to sort of underline the fact that he was a people's player and a fan's player, the the engraver, for whatever reason, put, instead of Jimmy White, as he would do John Parrott, Steve Davis, whatever, it's Jimmy Whirlwind White. As if to underline, yeah, this is not just another player, this is someone who people know and people people relate to and uh, of course he won the Masters already as we know he just couldn't quite get his hands on the third leg of the uh, the Holy Trinity now 1993 another very significant year in the history of the UK Championship firstly actually what happened was they cut the final down to one day it's always been two days well for a long long time it'd been two days first to 16 from 1980 uh, up to 92 but 93 the decision was taken, I think in part because of what happened in 92. It was 16-9, it fizzled out, basically. Although everyone loved seeing Jimmy win, it wasn't much of a final session. And I think there was a feeling around then that the danger was, and we saw it actually at the World Final as well, which may have had an effect, Henry winning 18-5 with a session to spare. The feeling was TV was getting shortchanged on that big final Sunday night session. They weren't getting a lot of frames. So they cut the final to best of 19, and... You know, it was a decision not everyone supported, but it was still the UK Championship, and it was still a big deal, of course. 
when Ronnie O'Sullivan won it. I mean, Ronnie, you know, was, he was only his second season as a pro. Incredible, really. 17, just about to turn 18. And up against Hendry in the final. And there's an expectation there, although I think everyone understood how good Ronnie was. There was an expectation, well, could he possibly go all the way? Because he's playing, you know, the number one player in the world. Someone who, OK, had not won the last two UKs, but you knew he was going to win more. Could he possibly do it? Well, he did. And it remains a remarkable achievement. You know, 25 years on, we're obviously still very much following Ronnie's career very closely and he's still uh, winning big tournaments. He won this one last year. But to win that at the age of 17, it's one of the great achievements for me in in the whole history of the sport. I don't think uh, many people could could genuinely argue with that because although he'd been talked up as a great prospect, until you win a big tournament, no one's ever really sure. There's been a lot of people talked up and haven't really delivered. He delivered in unbelievable fashion, 10-6. And of course, it was a very traumatic time for him. His father had been sent away, but... What he was able to do after that win was take the, the trophy to the prison to show him and to show him that all the investment that had been put into him uh, as a boy had paid off. Ronnie O'Sullivan, a great talent, he'd also been heavily supported by his dad and given really everything you need to become a champion, but ultimately out in a big final. It's up to him. doesn't matter really what's, been, what's happened before. You've got to do it, and he did. And uh, we'll return, of course, to Ronnie in due course but uh, the Hendry years would continue and 94 another remarkable final there's been so many in the UK Championship 94 was the year that Stephen Hendry made seven centuries <laughs> in the final against Ken Doherty seven centuries in a single match a record um, you know and we're talking here not last week we're talking 1994 you know there's a sort of assumption that some people have I think that well back in the 90s was the standard really that high well it was when Stephen Hendry played and if he if he played that snooker now, he'd still be winning the UK Championship and a lot else besides. You know, there's 20 ranking events this season. If Hendry played now like he did in '94, he'd probably be winning 10 of them a season. Seven centuries. Credit to Ken Doherty, he's won five frames. In fact, at one stage it was seven-five to Hendry, although he was making the big breaks. Doherty was winning some of the more tactical frames, but Hendry won 10-5, and that started a little run for him. Three in a row. He beat uh, Peter Ebden 10-3 the following year. And then 96, uh, his fellow Scott John Higgins 10-9, another thrilling match that uh, yielded ultimately Hendry his uh, fifth UK title. Uh, it was uh, came right down to the wire. Uh, he was actually 9-8 down, but closed it out in typical Hendry fashion, not with sort of tactical, uh, cautious play, but with just big breaks, 82 and 77, the two breaks in the last two frames. Thank you very much, UK title number five. So that's 1996. He was in the final again the following year came up against Ronnie O'Sullivan, who beat him again, 10-6, same scoreline. O'Sullivan was um, in a strange place at this point in his career. He, of course, made that maximum five minutes, 20 seconds at the Crucible. But was this was sort of his time when he had a few demons and uh, was struggling quite badly, I think, in the spotlight and with other areas of his life. He's only a young man. He was only in his early 20s. And it all culminated in, in not entering the, the tournament the year later. So he didn't defend his title in 1998. The winner that year was John Higgins, and he'd lost to Hendry two years previously, but I think everyone assumed, because Higgins at that point had become world champion earlier in 98, you know, he's going to start winning these other big tournaments as well. He did, he beat Matthew Stevens 10-6, and then Matthew again reached the final the following year, but came up against another member of the class of 92, who started to dominate the way Davis had dominated in the 80s, Hendry in the 90s, towards the late 90s, early 2000s, that triumvirate of Sullivan, Higgins and Williams began to dominate. And in fact, between them, they won the tournament six years in a row, starting in 97. 99 was uh, Mark Williams' uh, first victory in the, in the tournament. And of course, again, it proved significant because he went on at the end of the season to beat Stevens again in the final of the World Championship. 
So Williams arriving on the big stage, the UK is such an important part of that process to announce yourself as a, as a big name player. Williams was back in the final a year later, the first of the 2000s. On that occasion, uh, the tournament had actually moved. In fact, it had moved a couple of years earlier, I should say, in 98 to Bournemouth. And it was still in Bournemouth when Higgins beat Williams 10-4 to win the UK title for a second time. It was a shame to leave Preston. I, I'm not entirely sure now what the reason was, although I think it was something to do with the sponsor, with Liverpool Victoria at the time, uh, preferred Bournemouth. But Preston had, had been a great base for the for the tournament. And it's something that has changed, I think, over the years. You know, I don't, I'm not one of these who actually like to hark on about the 80s, but one thing about the 80s was you could usually uh, identify a tournament by the fact that it was played at a particular venue so and had a particular sponsor. So you'd have the Rothmans Grand Prix at the Hexagon in Reading. You'd have the Tenants UK at the Guildhall in Preston. You know, the B&H Masters at Wembley Conference Centre and obviously the Embassy World Championship at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. What's happened, I think, since is, you know, tournaments have come and gone, but also venues have changed. And it's quite hard sometimes to exactly identify what the tournament is. Not such a problem, though, I think, with the UK because it's got such a long history it's still the same tournament. And Bournemouth was a great venue, it really was, and had good crowds down there on the south coast of England. It moved in 2001, though, to the Barbican in York, and I think straight away, I remember going, going in there and thinking, this is a great venue, it really is. And, of course, we've, we've moved away later on, but it's come back and it's now established itself there. And that final was one of the greatest batterings you'll see in a final. Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Ken Doherty 10-1. And Ken, I think... Possibly in the end was satisfied to get one frame because O'Sullivan played just brilliantly. He played so well all through the tournament and again in the final, just a string of big breaks. I remember it was over in about half an hour in the evening. No one really knew what to do themselves. But that was uh, for Ronnie, UK title number three. Ken was back in the final uh, a year later, kind of mixed emotions. He made it much closer against Mark Williams but came out on the wrong side 10-9. So that was Williams' second UK title. And he, that season, uh, had started off on becoming the only, only the third player after Davison Hendry to win the big three titles in the same season. He won the Masters and he went on to win his second world title, beating Ken again, 1816. So uh, it's quite an exclusive club to be in. Even Ronnie and, and John Higgins have not yet achieved that, winning the three in the same season. But again, one of the class of 92 stepping up and winning it. Matthew Stevens, though, uh, in 2003, won against uh, Stephen Hendry 10-8 and uh, it's still remarkable to think that this is Matthews as we speak now only ranking title because what a player he is of course he'd already won the Masters he'd been close in world, world finals he'd been close in UK finals you know he was very much around that era one of the top four or five players in the world without question I think everyone was hoping that he would win a big tournament uh, such as the UK a big ranking event that is as I say he'd already won the Masters but a bit one of the big two ranking events and he did. He beat Hendry uh, 10-8. It was a match of uh, fluctuating fortunes, I remember. But Matthew sort of proving that, yeah, OK, you know, he'd lost in a world final. He'd gone on losing another one to Murphy about 18 months later. But he was a big occasion player, and uh, he proved that in 2003. 2004 was uh, Steve Maguire's year. This was a strange UK uh, Championship because most of the top players lost really early. And it was honestly, it was apparent from pretty much the start of the TV phase, that Maguire was going to win it. He was playing by far the best snooker. He'd just been runner-up in the British Open to John Higgins. And Maguire kind of arrived on the scene as an authentic uh, champion. He'd won the European Open uh, earlier that year, previous season, and was a player who whose time was coming. He was playing delightful snooker. And, as I say, it was just clear he was going to win the tournament. And when we got to the final, it's up against David Gray, who himself was very talented, but... Just uh, really didn't get any sort of look in, and Maguire went 10-1. It was a, another one of those finals that kind of finished almost before it started. But uh, a, a great triumph for Maguire. 
that was around the time that uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan predicted he would dominate the game for 10 years, which in some ways I think was the kiss of death because nobody was really, I think, going to dominate the game for 10 years in that very competitive era. But uh, Maguire, of course, did go on to win further ranking events. 2005, Ding Junhui. Of course, he'd broken through at uh, Beijing the previous season, earlier on in 2005, won the China Open as a wildcard, sparked the Chinese snooker boom. The thing about the 2005 final, though, was that he was up against Steve Davis, who was in his first UK final for 15 years, 25 years after he won his first UK title. And this was the tournament so associated with the great man. And what an extraordinary run he had to the final. It uh, was really for nostalgics or just people who who like to see recognisable names doing well again. It was a really enjoyable tournament. He beat Mark Allen, he beat Stephen Maguire, he beat Ken Doherty, he beat Stephen Hendry to reach the final, beating all these terrific players to get there. In the end, though, Ding, who I suppose in some ways not grown up in the UK and still only being a teenager then himself, he was only 18, wouldn't really have in his mind the Davis legend. He wouldn't get carried away with the fairy tale and be overawed by it. He was just playing snooker against another player. And Ding got the win 10-6, but that was uh, the last sort of hurrah for Davis in terms of reaching a final, though, of course, later on at the Crucible, he would have uh, that victory over Higgins and get to the quarterfinals a few years later. 2006, Peter Ebden beat uh, Stephen Hendry 10-6, of course, repeating the win over Hendry in the 2002 uh, World Final. Again, Ebden, you know, a player who was very much at the top at that time, um, was contending for tournaments. No great surprise he won it. I think what everyone remembers that tournament for, though, is Ronnie O'Sullivan walking out in uh, the semi-final against Hendry when he was uh, when he was 4-1 uh, in front. Oh, sorry, 4-1 behind, I should say. I think had he been in front, he might not have walked out. But, uh, yeah, that was... Uh, a very, very surprising and uh, quite electrifying moment in some ways. O'Sullivan just walking out. Um, I think it was a quarter-final, actually, not a semi-final. But anyway, Hendry was uh, given the win 9-1. Who's to say, you know, what would have happened if he'd have stayed? He might have turned it round, but clearly wasn't in the mood. Um, but was in the mood the following year because he came back and won the tournament <laughs> for a fourth time. Uh, 10-2 against Steve Maguire, another final where Ronnie was just uh, absolutely rampant. And, of course... Um, I suppose in some ways he felt he had a point to prove. There'd been a lot of controversy. In fact, he was fine for walking out of that match. In the semi-final, of course, against Mark Selby, uh, who had played, let's say, at a more methodical pace throughout the day, he uh, he won the decider with a maximum. And Ronnie had, had sat in his chair, counting the dots on the, on the teaspoon while Mark was at the table to sort of keep himself focused. Came out, finished off with a maximum, won the final 10-2 against Stephen Maguire. Now then, by, by this point, the tournament had moved to Telford, the international centre. Nothing wrong with Telford, but not quite the same, really, as Preston, Bournemouth or, or York. It didn't have the same vibe. It was a huge place, the international centre. And I think the tournament struggled for its identity the years it was there. It was kind of... I, I know it doesn't make that much difference to TV viewers, but for people involved in the tournament, the players and, and people around the, around the scenes, the officials and, and, and TV and so on, it never felt quite the same. Sean Murphy didn't care about that, though, because he won it in 2008 with a, a final win over Marco Fu, 10-9. Maybe not the highest standard final, but very dramatic. And uh, I think Murphy at the end flew the pink, but my memory of that is that Marco needed a snooker anyway, so it wasn't as decisive as maybe it could have been. But uh, that was Sean Murphy, because adding to his world title, I think there'd been pressure on Murphy at that point to to back up that world title. You know, there weren't that many tournaments. This is the point at that time. There weren't actually many tournaments you could win because there weren't many on the calendar. It was that the sort of dark days in some ways. But there was pressure on him to win another big one and he did and of course he went on to win the Masters as well and, and complete the Triple Crown a few years later. 
2009 uh, Ding Junhui's second win in the tournament against uh, John Higgins, 10-8. Uh, but because Higgins returned, I mean, it was talk about a tumultuous year for him. He returned 2010 to beat Mark Williams, but of course in the meantime he'd been suspended for all that business with the news of the world. And again, a bit like I said with O'Sullivan um, earlier, maybe felt he had a point to prove when he did come back. He was 9-5 down in the final to Williams, but won 10-9. And you could just see the effort that he put into it, the absolute determination to come back and to win a big tournament. And he did, and that was, uh, for him, UK title number three. Which takes us to 2011, and a different era entirely. Judd Trump and Mark Allen served up an extraordinary final. Um, Of course, Trump had broken through by winning the China Open, getting to the world final, and playing a style of snooker that people associated, I guess, with people like Jimmy White, Stephen Hendry, that all-out attacking game. I think, in some ways, Trump was even more attacking than them. He just absolutely went for everything and was on a roll and it was it was new and it was exciting he was playing the flair stuff he got the crowd on his side got to the final led 8-3 looked like he was going to really close it out quickly Mark Allen played some extraordinary snooker to come back in that final extraordinary snooker he had breaks of 1-3-9-1-2-9-1-2-5 within four frames in the end maybe the deficit was a bit too much and Trump to his credit because Allen had a 95 to trail only 9-8 Trump to his credit made 91 in the last frame one of the great UK finals in terms of standard and certainly in terms of speed it couldn't have been much quicker of course we're waiting I guess for Trump to win another triple crown event but he must go into this year's UK championship feeling full of confidence having just won the recent Northern Ireland 2012 was Mark Selby's year beat Sean Murphy 10-6 in the final no great surprise that Selby would win the UK championship he'd already won the Masters of course he would go on to win uh, the World Championship same a year later uh, when Neil Robertson beat Selby 10-7. Robertson had already been world champion, was always going to be a player who you would fancy in a big event like the UK Championship. But of course what happened a couple of years earlier, and this was I think a significant change in the history of the tournament. Um, first it had gone back to York, which everyone was happy with, but also uh, what people were maybe less happy with is that the format had changed. It had gone down in the early rounds to best of 11s. It had been for years and years best of 17s, which really enhanced its status as second to the World Championship with the longer matches. And a decision was taken in conjunction with the broadcasters, the home broadcaster, the BBC, that it should be cut. What I was told was that they wanted it cut to best of nine, and the compromise was that it would be best of 11. Still too short for a lot of people. I think that the format, though, at the time was great for TV. It was last 32, two tables, so there was a real special feel. Even though the matches were shorter, and I could understand why people wanted them to be best of 17, it was still a great event. But of course what happened eventually was the flat draw system came in and that created and still creates a lot of controversy because it means that at the Barbican in York there are now two arenas effectively. Um, this happened, I think 2013 was the first one where it happened. And so you, there's the main arena which is nice and there's four tables in it and then there's the sports hall where there's, uh, there's more tables but it's, it's a tighter arena um, and also I think if you're a player and you're sent into the sports hall there must be a feeling that, OK, I'm, I'm actually, unless I'm playing a top player and I get, get into the main arena, I'm sort of almost a second-class citizen. It's a bit like being on a train. You've got the first class where you can spread out and you've got a standard class where everyone's standing up. And I do understand why players don't like that. I think the, the unfortunate thing for me is that the Barbican is such a lovely venue. York is such a lovely city. And they've sort of copped the flat for this. It's not their fault. You know, they are the size they are. And they accommodated the event, as I say, really well when it was last 32 TV stage. Um, so it's not their fault that this change has come. 
Uh, I'm sure people will talk about it again this year, but it is what it is, and I guess uh, ultimately the players just have to get on with it. 2014, Ronnie O'Sullivan for a fifth time. He led Trump 9-4 in the final. Trump came back well. O'Sullivan won 10-9. It was one of those finals where, again, and we've seen it quite often throughout the history of the tournament, kind of looks like it's petering out, but then all of a sudden things start to happen. And again, a bit like Mark Allen had against him, Trump played superbly well to come back. He had breaks 120, 127, 86. Put O'Sullivan under pressure, but O'Sullivan, great player that he is, responded. And as I say, that was his fifth UK title. Neil Robertson won it for a second time in 2015. Of course, at the 147 uh, against Dian Wembo, beat him 10-5. Selby, uh, 2016, his second UK title, beat O'Sullivan 10-7. And then last year, 2017, Ronnie O'Sullivan equaled Steve Davis's record of six UK titles, beating Sean Murphy 10-5. Now, there are lots of stories and matches and reminiscences that I've missed out. There's been maximums, there's been controversy. Jamie Burnett had a, a 1-4-8 in qualifying in 2004, highest break in the history of the professional game. Didn't get a penny for it because there was no pre-TV high break prize. You'll have your own memories of the UK Championship. But that's an overview, just going through year by year, of some of the great players, the great champions, and some of the great matches. And I think what's what's significant about this tournament is you look at the role of honour. Really, there are no surprise winners. Not like the World Championship, where you know people like Joe Johnson, Graham Dart have come through maybe not expected to. You look back at the role of honour, and it's all people pretty much you'd expect to win. I suppose Mountjoy's second win in 88 was a surprise because he was on the decline. But basically, it is a great role of honour to be on. It, it is proper champions, proper players winning a proper tournament. I do understand people think the UK Championship has been devalued. Obviously, prize money in a lot of tournaments, particularly in China, the China Open, for example, is now more than the UK Championship in terms of the first prize. And with so much snooker being played, and the format's kind of very often the same, the, the flat draw, the 1-2-8, it can be in danger, I guess, of looking like just another tournament. But what it has above all these other events, apart from the World and the Masters, is its history. It's long history, dating back to 1977, a lot of players playing in the event, particularly British players, will have the memories that I've talked about of watching it and wanting to be part of it. And it's very tempting in this age to, the minute the tournament starts, find something to complain about, be critical of this, be critical of that. Here's an idea for this year's UK Championship. Why not just enjoy it? If you're a player, do your best. If you're a fan, just sit back and enjoy it. Another chapter in the history of one of the game's great events. Because one day, someone like you will be listening to someone like me talking about the next few chapters, maybe celebrating, who knows, 100 years of the UK Championship. And this will be maybe a, a significant year that they'll talk about. They'll talk about a great tournament, a great final. It all is part of the, the great tapestry of our sport and, and particular tournaments that have a history. They're ones you remember. They're the ones you think about and think about fondly. So that's my kind of advice, my plea almost to everybody. Just enjoy it because it's a great event. And I'm sure the standard of snooker, as it, as it always seems to be these days, will be really high. And we will find out on uh, in, in the middle of December, December the 9th, I think, the final, who's going to be the latest player to add their name, maybe for a second, third, in O'Sullivan's case, seventh time to the great role of honour that is the UK Championship. I understand that's been a lot of rambling <laughs> from me. I promise that on the next edition we'll have a guest. But that is the history of the UK Championship. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.